Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Rachel Marie Crane Williams, an associate professor of gender, women's, and sexuality studies and studio art at the University of Iowa, where she has worked since 1999. She is the author of several articles and books, including Teaching the Arts Behind Bars and Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed, The Detroit Uprising of 1943. Today, we're talking about her most recent book, Elegy for Mary Turner, an illustrated account of a lynching, published by Verso Books in 2021. Elegy is a visually stunning and engaging exploration into the lynching of 10 black men and one woman, Mary Turner, by white residents in Brooks County, Georgia in 1918. Williams uses a mix of original illustrations, archival documents, and handwritten text to identify the victims and killers, explore the investigations, or lack thereof, following the lynchings, the disturbing behavior of white residents who encouraged, participated in, or tried to ignore the violent spectacle, and the Black people who sought justice for the deceased. Dr. Williams, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here talking with you, of all people, today. (laughs) Oh, I think it'll be fantastic. Um, First off, congratulations on the publication of of this book. Um, As we were kind of talking a little bit uh, before the interview, this is really such an important book at such a critical time, uh, especially considering all of these efforts by state and local officials to deny young people access to the kinds of history that that, that you engage with uh, in this work. Um, and I think this book really could not be more essential to a more full understanding of the tragedy and atrocities faced by Black Americans and equally their struggle to overcome seemingly insurmountable odds in their quest for justice and equity. And I think the thing that really drew me to this book is the way that you do it. Um, this is a really engrossing work um, that that isn't just a, a simple recounting of events, but you really engage readers visually. And and I think the decision to incorporate the primary sources and and the artistic recreations is just a really vital way that to to engage with a tough topic. Um, and I think it's also a very accessible way to engage with a really tough topic. Even my wife, who has spent the last decade listening to me talk about extra legal violence and, and, and race relations, she's not terribly interested in anything I have to say, but she was immediately drawn uh, to your book. And, and I often use her as, as, as my judge. Is this something that, that like general audiences would really like? Uh, and I'm happy to report that, that yes, uh, your, your, your work, this elegy, uh, is something that at least and in my very small sample size, uh, the general audience will be very interested and engaged with. The title suggests that this 
book is about the killing of one person, Mary Turner. But in reality, and as, as I brought up, she was one of several victims uh, of lynch mob violence in Brooks County, Georgia in May 1918. And so I thought the best place to start, uh, especially for some of our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with the story of Mary Turner, I would be with just a, a simple and, and brief recounting of events. What happened uh, in May 1918 in Brooks County, Georgia, that, that led to all of these atrocities? Absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, as a historian, um, that history is, it's a concoction, right, of different people's points of view, and especially at particular points in time when documentation looked different than it does now. So um, there was a farmer, and he basically used the convict leasing system to get people to work his land. And he had a terrible um, reputation as a very sort of brutal person. So one evening, the story goes that there's a couple different versions of the story, right? As there tends to be in these cases, as, as someone who's also looked at lynchings, it always seems like there are, there are a variety of variations to, to, to the narratives of what happened. And I almost find those as fascinating as, as the actual cases. Yeah, so this is all around um, Valdosta, Georgia. And so, you know, he, he's been renting um, convict lease. He's been using the convict lease system. He's had a number of altercations with people that he's, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, leased their labor from the jail. And these people are all black men. You know, as you probably are aware, the convict lease system was sort of a carryover of prison, um, of slavery, in that it was the only way in many ways to do a couple different things. One, to continuously oppress black people, but also to get um, get labor done, agricultural labor done. So this is, you know, in 1918, it's an interesting time. Obviously, we all know now about the flu, the Spanish flu, but also in 1918, in this part of Georgia, there was a boll weevil infestation at the same time. So there's a sense of urgency, you know, to get the cotton in. So, um, so I have to I set that up. So one version is that at the crossroads of um, Barney and Morvin, his shot, his gun was stolen. And then later that evening, he was shot with it. That's one version. Now, whether that's true or not, it's really hard to say. What we do know is that there was shots fired through his front window. This is another version of the story. One dramatic version is that the shots went through the chest of his pregnant wife. And it's interesting to think about two pregnant, two pregnant women in this story, um, nearly pierced her heart and then went through her and killed him. Right. So there's another dramatic reading of that um, instance. We do know he was shot. He died. Now, what happened to her? One version is that she runs off, you know, hides in a creek, finds help with, you know, these good black neighbors. And that's the, that's the phrase. Um, and, you know, another version is that that didn't happen at all. And so it turns out he has brothers and um, they obviously are incensed that this man has been killed. They don't know who did it. Um, many people suspect who did it in part because um, of, uh, a series of like events that happened ahead of time around uh, the labor, you know, so if someone leased someone's labor, 
there was this expectation that that person would be able to work off their bail or whatever they owed the justice system. Well, we know how that system might work, whereas, you know, well, you only did this many hours this week, you haven't met that, now I'm going to add interest on that. So it's this perpetuating um, horrible cycle. So he is killed. Uh, people go looking for the person that did this. And there's a number of rumors floating around about who might have done this. You know, one version is that um, this was actually outside agitators, um, you know, again, linked to World War I, um, trying to uh, cause problems in that area. But in fact, the man that did it is Sidney Johnson. And, you know, the entire time, and this is another sort of backstory, Sidney Johnson is hiding in Valdosta. Um, again, one version is that he was hiding in a quote unquote foxhole and his mother was helping him during all this. You know, another version is they don't know where he is. So, of course, these men are, are looking everywhere and they 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 pull together quite a posse of people. Um, so initially it's the brothers of the victim or the man who was shot. And then they are rounding up posses to go and search for anybody who might be connected to the killing. You know, it's not clear in the, in the um, documentation who the, who the leader was, but I, you know, this is a white man. He's, he's landed gentry in some ways, you know, his, if this tells you anything, his tombstone is like a six foot obelisk. <laughs> Right. 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 Well, clearly, this is a man of need. He was an important guy. Important fellow. And he, he's, you know, if you go to that part of Georgia and you look at the list of names that Walter White was able to collect from an informant, you can still see those names in that town, you know, um, on different businesses. So these were uh, many of the people that that were part of this posse, you know, came from prominent families. Um, so they basically begin to. Uh, terrorize and kill um, black men who cross their paths for a variety of reasons. So it's not clear, again, how they chose their victims. You know, in some ways, we believe that there was some association with, um, with Hampton Smith, but we aren't, you know, it's not clear. And again, this is where the records get really murky. And the sad thing is, which is, you know, this as a lynching scholar, there's no justice, you know, there is no due process. And the people who are deeply harmed don't have a voice. Like it's not clear what happened, how, you know, how things went down. We only know that they were, you know, taken, tortured, killed, displayed. So they go on this rampage, essentially a lynching rampage. And, you know, the thing also, and I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about this, is we know that lynchings are public spectacles. So these are not things that happen secretly in the dark of night. You know, these are designed to terrorize um, Black communities in this particular part of the country. So uh, one of the people that's caught up in this um, series of lynchings is Hayes Turner. So Hayes Turner, and this is why it's Elegy for Mary Turner. So it's really, you know, I'm a gender, women's, and sexuality studies scholar. I'm really interested in the, the stories of women. And one of the, and I'll tell you, this is a long-winded account, but why this story um, really stuck with me so much. Um, but I'll come back to that. So Hayes Turner is lynched by this mob. And... Um, his wife, Mary, who is uh, about 19 years old, so imagine a very young woman. She's already got two children. She's pregnant, about eight months pregnant. And, you know, that would not have been unusual for the time. Um, 
you know, we can go into a whole nother thing about birth control and women's control over their reproductive bodies at that point, but we won't go there today. You just want to hit on all the hot I know, topics I'm like, today. I just make yeah. everyone upset. <laughs> she speaks out and she says, um, if I knew who did this, I would hold them accountable. I would call them to justice. And the, 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 you know, there should be justice. This is wrong. Well, it's interesting because then what happens is this lynch mob comes after her. So, you know, she's asking for help. She's asking for authorities to step in. She's saying, we know who's doing this. We've seen this. It's her speech that gets her in trouble. It's her audacity as a woman, as a black woman, as a pregnant black woman, as a mother to speak out against this violence. Um, and so they, you know, he's lynched on a Saturday. She's basically driven past his body. And then she's also lynched in a just horrific um, way. And people watch, you know, again, this is a public spectacle. And this is one of the things that, you know, about this story, you know, people are like, why would you write this? Why do we need to still know this? And, and, um, do people really ask you that? Why do we need to still know this? Yeah. I mean, you know, people will say things like, um, and these are mostly imaginary people, but, um, <laughs> they'll say things along the lines of, you know, we understand lynching. This is terrible. You know, what? why would I ever want to read this? And and why would you put this down? Why would you not do something different? You know, and this has actually been a question throughout my career. I've, I work with people in prison and, um, you know, people are like, why don't you work with kids? Why do you want to work with people who are in trouble? So this is a common uh, refrain. But, um, you know, we can't forget what we're capable of. And, um, and we cannot, you know, I think people need to recognize, you know, they say, oh, those things don't happen now. And I'm like, actually they do. Uh, they still do that. Still that mentality, vigilante justice happens all the time. And in this story, which again, relates directly to your scholarship, you know, police were complicit. I mean, we know that they were involved in this. They were, they were, um, joined with the lynch mob at different points in time. Um, they, you know, say that these people who were lynched were in our, in our custody, but we were surrounded by the mob. We didn't have a choice, you know, just a series of um, sort of moments. So, um, so anyway, she's lynched and uh, it's terrible. And of course she, her child who, her, um, they cut her child out of her stomach as part of this and killed the child too. So um, it's just a horrendous story, but I don't think people, there are many people who don't think about the fact that women and children were also victims in lynchings. And she in particular, you know, was lynched because she spoke out against injustice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think when you, when you look back at, at the way in which lynching was justified by by white proponents of it, it was often justified as as a necessary evil to to constrain uh, these these beast like African Americans who were not raised with the civilizing influence of slavery. This is their justification, and you had to use these these barbaric and public displays uh, of violence to keep them in their place, to seek that retribution, and make sure that that these these rapes that they were accused of uh, wouldn't happen again. Uh, but as Ida B. Wells and many other people pointed out very clearly, uh, rape was not typically the charge associated with people getting lynched. It was murder. Um, and I think the thing about Mary Turner, which is just, just so terrifying and sad, is, is the exact thing that you pointed out. She wasn't 
targeted for any potential crime. She was targeted for speaking out um, and and wanting to see some form of justice given to to uh, her husband, who she thinks is needlessly executed um, and not given his his due process rights. Um, and I think that's just just a really terrifying reality. What I really appreciated about this is I I knew about the story of Mary Turner. I didn't know how it was connected to the larger series of this kind of outburst of racial violence in in Valdosta um, or the surrounding areas uh, throughout this, this series of weeks. I thought that was something that was really uh, new to me, that she wasn't just this one-off. Um, this was actually a series uh, of, of really violent actions taken um, in the context, again, of, of this, this boll weevil uh, that's destroying cotton crops. But also what I was thinking is this, this kind of new Negro mentality uh, that really comes back with returning black servicemen uh, after they, they serve overseas in World War I. And it's this idea that they wouldn't um, be, be acquiescing to, to the kind of violent demands being placed on, on their generation in particular. Um, and, and, Mary Turner obviously wasn't a returning service person, uh, but you can still see how that mentality uh, is kind of seeping into her line of thinking too. Even in you know South Georgia, Valdosta, rural community, uh, she is also not willing to acquiesce to the kind of violent demands that are being placed on on Black people uh, across the South and across the nation during this Jim Crow period. I thought that was really uh, an important point that that you emphasized really great um, in the piece. So let me ask you this. You kind of brought up the story. Um, you've you've talked about the ways in which people kind of grapple with it. Like, why would you want to study that? Uh, how did you first learn about the the story of Mary Turner? Well, this is a, you know, this is one of those pearls of wisdom. Let me just tell you, uh, if you're writing a book, don't start writing another book. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, was I only have to- like five going on right yeah, now. Exactly. It's, it's, um, it's a terrible thing. But I was working on um, Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed, which is about um, a series of events that happened in June in 1943 in Detroit. And I was trying to figure out how did this start, which is a question that a a number of historians have tried to untangle. You know, why I thought I would be able to do that, I don't know. But anyway, I was was looking at, and in particular, I was looking at rumors that start in white communities and black communities that spur violence interracial um, violence that's collective. And one of the rumors, obviously, that comes up, and you sort of alluded to it earlier, is sort of rooted in patriarchy, we must protect women. So um, the white rumor is that a black man has raped a white woman. In the black community, the rumor is that a, a white mother and child have been harmed, or a black mother and child have been harmed by the white community. So, um, in that literature, the name Mary Turner came up, and I thought, well, this is interesting. I don't know this story, and I went to school at Florida State University in Tallahassee. I taught in Bainbridge, Georgia for a number of years, um, and I was, you know, there's a whole artist community in Valdosta, Georgia, so I was very familiar with Valdosta. Obviously, there's a great university there, Valdosta State, and it's a beautiful town, Um, and I had driven through there. My family is in North Carolina, so I drove through uh, southern Georgia on a regular basis to North Carolina and also to Nashville, so I was very familiar, and I thought, how have I never heard this, you know? Um, So I looked into it, and I 
the other connection was Walter White. And I'm a, you know, Walter White is just one of the most interesting figures. And when I say that, people always think I'm talking about Breaking Bad. <laughs> but I'm not. Um, so in 1918, Walter White, so Walter White plays prominently in um, Run Home If You Don't Want to Be Killed, the Detroit story, because of his, um, you know, role with the NAACP. So at this point in time, he was young. He had just graduated from college in Atlanta. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with Walter White, he's a black man, but he has blonde hair, blue eyes, very pale skin, passes for white, um, and uses this to his advantage. So one of his first assignments is to go down to uh, Valdosta, to Brooks County, and figure out what's going on. So he rolls into town as a traveling salesman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is a time when um, interpersonal conversation was entertainment. And, uh, you know, if you live in the South, people are very happy to talk to people they don't know. So, um, you know, he goes into to barber shops. He goes into lunch counters and sort of says, you know, what do you know about this? I heard this is happening. And of course, people are willing to talk. Um, they do. He finds someone that basically says, listen, I'll tell you the whole story. Um, and I'm assuming that person must have felt some guilt, must have felt they needed to to bear witness to what happened, even though they played a role in it. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe they were afraid. So he basically gets the lowdown, gets names, figures out what's going on, sends it back. This is all very like right after this happened. So the NAACP is communicating with the governor and saying, you need to do something. You need to, you know, hold these people accountable. And the governor basically says exactly what you had said earlier. Well, if, if these, you know, black communities would police themselves, we wouldn't have to do this work, um, which is atrocious. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyways, so between Walter White's connection, the, the through line there, and then um, the, history of rumors. And then at the same time, I was working as a doula. I don't know if you know what a doula is, but it's basically a birth companion. Mm -hmm. It's not a midwife, but um, you do, you know, you do a lot to support uh, people who are pregnant during labor. Yeah, you advocate on their behalf. Absolutely. Um, and you rub feet and rub backs and push hips and, you know, mop brows. But I was doing that work, um, and I'd originally trained as a doula to work with women in prison. So um, a number of the women that I had worked with, um, you know, I was just deeply involved in birth work at that point. And so her story in particular really troubled me mm -hmm. in terms of images. And then at the same time, I went to the Women's Museum of Art in Washington, D.C. And in the library, and I love libraries, I think they are holy places. Um, in the library was a small exhibit of a woman who was um, Helena Batrakova, I believe is her name. I always butcher it. Uh, shame on me because she's amazing. Who was in, inspired by wordless um, novels, basically. So Lynn Ward is a good example. So at that point in time, and you know, this is also silent film is happening. There's a whole lot going on culturally. She had done these beautiful woodcuts of just life and they, you know, went together. And as soon as I saw that, originally I was going to do these as etchings. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I did one and I was like, this just doesn't, it's too subtle. It's too beautiful. It's too, mm, it just doesn't have what I want. And I love to do um, uh, woodcut and linoleum. And so it just came. I was like, I have to do these 
pieces. And I did not think at the time of a book. I was not thinking of a book. So I spent a couple of years um, carving all these images and printing them. And then I just, I remember I was at my parents' house and I laid them out on the floor. I had, you know, well over 20 of these. And I put them down. I said, this could be any lynching story. This mm -hmm. is not particular enough to say this is South Georgia. This is Mary Turner, you know. So then I went back and wrote it. But that's um, that's kind of how that came together. Let me ask you this, because you kind of brought up part of what makes this so compelling, and that's the the artistic work that accompanies the narrative um, behind what happened to Mary Turner and and the other black men who were also lynched during that time period. Would you call this a graphic novel? You know, it's funny. And like I said, I didn't set out to make a book. And mm -hmm. so, um, I mean, I think you could, you know, I think if we wanted to split hairs and I could conjure my friends who are comic scholars, they would yeah. say, you know, word, text, image, story, time. Yes, mm -hmm. it, it it would count as a sequential narrative. So, I mean, I guess you could say that. Um, I don't really know how to explain what it is. I mean, I think of it as like an artist book. Um, well, I struggled as I was prepping for this interview. I thought, okay, it's, it's not a graphic novel per se, and you even refer to it as an illustrated account. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to see how you thought it should it it should best be described because graphic novel was the first thing that came to my mind whenever I was looking at the book. Uh, but after I read it, I said, I don't know if, if that quite fits yeah. uh, with, 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 with what you've done here. It, and it really doesn't. And, you know, these are just there. It's really illustrated. I mean, here's, you know, here's the words and here's an illustration. And, um, you know, you could probably just have the words without the illustration or probably just have the illustration without the words and still get the gist of it. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to name it. And, you know, even when I imagined it as a book, um, I imagined it as a very tall, thin book. Mm -hmm. And that's I not can a, see that. Yeah, it's not a standard size. And so the printer was like, okay, so if we print it, you're going to have to sell it for like $60. I was <laughs> like, I can't, that's not okay. I don't want to do that. I don't want any money for this, but I certainly don't want it to be inaccessible to people. Right. So, um, so you know, it was, a, it was a whole process of trying to figure out how to, how to make this a book. Um, so you 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 kind of brought this up uh, just a moment ago. You said you know when when you had the pieces of artwork all laid out, you said, well, this could have really been any lynching case. What there's there's nothing that was that was particular, maybe in the way that it was originally conceived to Mary Turner. But why do you think this case in particular needed to be told in this in this very visual way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so. Um, I mean, I don't. I just, I needed to tell it, you know, from a selfish point of view, these images were in my head and I needed to make them. And, um, you know, even once I made them, I was like, I don't really know what to do with this. Cause I can imagine if you just walked into a gallery and I don't, I'm not, a, I don't generally show my work. That's not how I think about myself as an artist. Um, and I did show the pieces, uh, it, you know, people they don't even know what they're coming to see. And then they come to see it and they're like, oh, you know, and of course it's around you the whole way and it's hanging on a wall and there's this, you know, it's just a lot of uh, layers to that. But um, I honestly made it because I just had to get the images out of my head. I mean, you know, I, it was just, um, it was just a really intense thing. You know, I, I don't really know how to articulate it other than that, these images were in my head. I needed to get them done. After I read Walter White's account, which I thought was one of the most, um, you know, that piece of writing is very stark. 
and uh, he publishes it in the crisis, which um, was brave, you know, with the men's names. And then I read um, Julie Armstrong's book, which was excellent. Uh, and if anyone's interested in this, she is really the leading authority on this story and just a fantastic writer, um, fantastic you know, she's a real interdisciplinary scholar. I don't even know how to name what she is, but just phenomenal. So I, I really just felt like I had to tell it. I also thought I want a lot of people to know about this. And to me, this really, you know, I'm so fortunate because um, people that wrote for this book, Mariam Kaba, who is phenomenal and someone who I, I just admire endlessly, um, you know, this really does go to say her name. This does go to, you know, we can't forget um, that this happened and that women suffered in this way for just asking for justice. Um, Absolutely. I don't know how to phrase this next question. I am not terribly artistically inclined. Um, and I, I, I just want to give listeners some kind of visual sense of, of, of what it is we're talking about here. So as an artist, and, and maybe this is an unfair question, how would you describe the style of, of the artistic depictions that you've put into this illustrated account? I wanted it to be really raw and really graphic um, and um, to use sort of a limited visual language within, um, within the piece. Uh, so, you know, I also wanted it to have sort of... Um, a particular feel. So I chose a very, the ink that I chose is a really warm black. And then um, the paper is this cream colored uh, paper with a little bit of texture. And again, when I printed them originally, all of the prints, Valdosta State University has all of the prints. They were long and thin. Um, and so uh, with, you know, handwriting and the handwriting is one of those things I've, uh, you know, critics have talked about that. And I have to say, so my grandmother, um, was an avid record keeper. So when she died, no one wants these, but me, she had boxes of postcards that her mother and she had received dating, you know, before this time period. And I just went through and said, you know, what does she have from 1918? Um, and you know, these were postcards her mother would have written because she was born in 1913 and they all use a dip pen and they have this beautiful handwriting and my own handwriting is atrocious. Um, and as an artist, I'm real, um, I have some pet peeves. And so one of them is, and I'm not a designer and this is, you know, you will see this in any of the work that I do. I absolutely despise it when the font as the text doesn't match the drawing, you know, when the aesthetics don't mesh. And so for me, the only aesthetic that would mesh with this was handwritten with a dip pen, you know, and that's how I write with a dip pen. And I really did go back and look at how my great grandmother wrote things and sort of use that to emulate it. So, um, so yeah, I would say that's kind of what it looks like. These are really raw, stark, simplistic, um, linoleum prints. They look like wood, but they're linoleum. Um, you know, with uh, narrative, you know, handwritten narrative. And I wanted it to be hard to read. I wanted people yeah. to have to like struggle to read it. How do I read this? Um, and I know cursive was the other thing. A lot of people said, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that don't read cursive. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they really should. Um, and that's not an empathetic thing to say, <laughs> uh, you know, Every, so many things will be lost if people don't read cursive. So well, you know what, what struck me as I was reading it, I kind of appreciated the handwritten and, and, and cursive text. 
and we can get to this in just a moment, but uh, it felt like you were reading someone's diary or something like that, right? Like something very personal. Um, the artistic representations, you said you wanted them to be graphic, but I will say as someone who has studied lynchings um, and struggled with how to best incorporate some of these photographs into the classroom and talk with students about what happened, but you don't want to just re-victimize um, the victims here or make people too uncomfortable because some of these lynching graphics are, are these images are just terrible to look at. But I think you did a really nice job of, of, of kind of allowing us to engage with the horrific nature of what took place, but in a, in, in a way that wasn't just grotesque for the sake of being grotesque. Uh, I think the first time I ever described a lynching, I used a newspaper account in like, you know, as a graduate student and and I was at a graduate student conference and, you know, it was, it was a newspaper account. It was grotesque and it was graphic. And, and, and one of the more senior scholars in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, Hey, like for future reference, like, I understand why you included that, but maybe, you know, just, just describe it in your own words and don't necessarily um, emphasize the graphic nature, but you know, this is something we all struggle with too. Like part of, of understanding just how problem, like this isn't just a killing. This isn't something that, that happened quickly. Um, part of the horrific nature of lynchings is that they were so horrific and so publicized and, and photographed and the like. And so I thought you did a really nice job of, of kind of weaving that a little bit, making it tough to look at, but not, not kind of grotesque and perverse for the sake of being grotesque and perverse. So I really appreciated that approach. Um, in conjunction with the handwriting, which which really made it feel a little bit more personal uh, and kind of like you were looking at something that wasn't necessarily supposed to be seen. Uh, but like you said, with your grandmother's cards, um, she probably didn't think that, well, later in life, someone's going to be going through them, right? Like it was just a personal exchange. She didn't think much of it. So I thought that was a really nice touch that just kind of made it feel a little bit more inviting, uh, but also like it was something that I wasn't necessarily supposed to be doing. So I thought that was a really uh, fascinating approach. The other thing that I thought was really great that that contributed to it and made it to me feel like it was someone's journal is the inclusion of those primary sources that you had in there. You you, you have some interesting um, newspaper clips and you can actually see uh, the tape uh, on on the top of them, which I thought was really fascinating as someone who spent a lot of time in archives. You know, this is this is what a lot of those newspaper clippings look like. Um, there were some photographs. There's there's. I'm assuming kind of a postcard from old Valdosta or something like that. So why did you, you decide to include uh, those, those primary sources in addition to the handwritten text and the stuff that you had already included? Well, it's funny because you bring up a couple of things. One is, you know, centering the narrator in this was kind of interesting. And initially I bought this on eBay. I found this um, woman's journal from 1918. The person never used it. So it was just page after blank page. And I thought it would be really interesting to use that to do the narration. But then I thought, you know, and I was going to mix it in with just some other sort of day-to-day -day things just to kind of make people recognize that this is happening in a small town, but people are still sharing recipes and going to church and, you know, white people, black people are clearly like having to go about their daily lives, having to react as though everything is normal while at the same time facing this intense ongoing everyday terror. Um, so then, and reading Walter White's description is really interesting because it is, it is, it's not voyeuristic, but you do get this sense of like someone's telling him the story and he's just writing it as plainly as possible. You know, this is what happened. And so 
centering the narrator was really interesting. Also finding breaks. Um, you know, this is a hard thing to read. And a lot of people have said to me, I just really struggled to read this. And so I'm, I kind of wanted to build in these breaks. And I also wanted people to recognize what does it look like here? I mean, like you're, you know, you're from Texas, you understand the South is, you cannot go anywhere without seeing traces of indigenous people, traces of, you know, our, the history of slavery and oppression and dominion, you know, um, it is an agricultural landscape. It's a haunted landscape, I think, in the South. And so I wanted those that landscape to play a role in the story. So, you know, what is the Little River? Where is it? When I, I went on site a couple of times just to try to get a feel for things, see things, try to find some of the places that people talked about, you know, where's this crossroads? Where's Folsom's Bridge? You know, when I went down to the Little River, I saw Mary Turner's, um, uh, the memorial that people erected to her and it, it's spooky, you know, and it's, um, you know, here I am, this woman in a rental car with a giant camera and it's like, huh, standing next to her thing. And I'm sure people are like, what is this white woman doing here? Why is right. she here? What, you know, what kind of, um, what is she looking into? But, you know, it's a, that place was really important. And the, and the place in 1918 was particularly important to me. So, I mean, I, I, I found that stuff on eBay. I found the postcard from Valdosta. You know, I found the postcard of the Little River. So, you know, that was sort of important to me. And also just sort of the Farmer's Almanac. What is What are people, what texts are people sort of thinking about in the fabric of the day-to-day? -day? And that was something I really wanted to get across to people. But also, you know, the telegrams, like trying to introduce Walter White into this as like a witness and the telegrams he sent back and forth with the NAACP and that then the NAACP sends to the governor's office asking for questions. And then the newspaper articles were fascinating to me. So, you know, you have newspapers in Georgia that record this in one way. Oh, another black person was lynched, you know, not without any um, uh, shame or guilt or pointing out that this is like criminal. And then of course you've got the piece from New York that says, this is a blight on all of us that this is happening. And so I also wanted to represent that, like, you know, in this area, this was, I hate to say normal cause I don't think that's true, but it wasn't, um, it was seen in a very different way than it would have been seen if it had been in another. And, you know, you, as a historian of lynching, you know, this lynchings happened all over the country. They weren't just in the South, although that was a primary, um, you know, obviously you've got Georgia, Texas, um, Florida as big, you know, big places where these, a lot of these things happen in this particular period of time. So, mm -hmm. um, so that those extra materials, as a historian were fascinating to me. And it was, it was really important to me that they were um, part of that journey for the reader, you know, and to give them a break, sort of to take their mind away, come back and take it away. Absolutely. I think that's important. And I think you certainly accomplished that. It made it feel like there was a sense of place associated with, with this artistic rendering of what happened in the past. It kind of made it feel like it was a little bit more real. All right. So as you've mentioned a couple of times, I, I have studied lynchings myself. Um, 
dozens of other scholars have studied lynchings, um, especially um, in, in terms of historical scholarship. There's monographs, articles, especially over the last two decades. I mean, it is it is a fairly robust field. And I know you said you did this for largely personal reasons. You were selfish. You wanted to get these images out of your mind and, and, and out into the world. Uh, but what do you hope the larger takeaway is from from this illustrated account of, of a lynching, this elegy to Mary Turner? What do you hope the larger takeaway is for, say, the readers and then maybe grandiose society as a whole? Yeah. I mean, again, I really don't want people to forget. There's um this beautiful piece I read about, um, and the name of the poet escapes me, but he writes about life after the Holocaust and, um, you know, just trying to get through a day knowing all this happened in this space. And that he said, you know, I want you to carve this on your heart. And I really do feel that way about racial violence in our country. You know, I don't want people to forget. Um, I mean, in part, that's one of the reasons, you know, all of these bills right now about what people can teach and what they can't teach, I find to be incredibly harmful because I think we have to reckon with with racial violence in this country and with white supremacy. And we have to sort of begin to, we cannot have an anti-racist society without recognizing how we got here. And so that to me is really important. Um, and just to sort of say, this is how white supremacy worked. I mean, I think people don't really comprehend the fact that when there were lynchings, there was no due process. There was no, you know, vigilante justice happened and no one was held accountable, you know, and this is also when I was doing this, um, you know, this, this came into my consciousness before, you know, sometime between Ferguson and George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this idea of can people who perpetrate um, state sanctioned violence, because, you know, this was state sanctioned violence, people knew what was happening. And the people in authority did nothing. So by their um, complacency, you know, they sanctioned this as um, as state authorities. So this is state sanctioned violence. And it, there has to be some accountability, you know, otherwise this is what things look like. And so for me, that was really important. Yeah, I also really appreciated the fact that you listed the names of the people who were associated with the lynching. I think that's really important. Um, if I could make a plug for myself here, uh, in the Lynching and LaBelle Digital History Project that I did, I, I came across the list of people who were arrested and associated with the lynching of Henry Patterson here. Uh, and that was very important to me too. Put those names up there, put them out. Because uh, as you suggested, those names still resonate in, in small towns and, and in big cities uh, across the South. And I think it's important to understand that this isn't a mob is, is referred to as a thing, right? As like one large cohesive thing, but in many ways that kind of allows the individuals to get away with something without recognizing that a mob is composed of those individuals who all made the decision to be there and to engage in that behavior uh, and then not talk about it afterwards. Uh, and I think that was a really important part of, of the story that, that, that you put right out there for the reader to engage with. Well, These are the people who are implicated. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, it's kind of ironic, but I think you have to be fair in recognizing this is an account. This was an oral account given from one person to another. There was no investigation. You know, we don't know. Sure. I mean, perhaps the man that spoke to Walter White had an axe to grind and decided, well, I'm going to give him these names. You know, maybe right. they, I mean, it's 
probably pretty safe to say it was fairly accurate. Um, well, but even I, not if it's not 100% true or accurate, it at least gives a historian or a journalist or, or an artist the ability to begin to look at these individuals as opposed to just saying, well, this was a mob. This was either everybody. And by saying it's everybody, it's almost nobody's fault. Uh, I think the really important thing is to at least provide uh, a thing, a name that people can then begin to look into uh, and see what their, their involvement or implication was. Well, you know, and the other thing for me on a personal note, and I think this has to do, this comes from working with people who are incarcerated. You know, you have this horrendous moment, right? Where people cause harm to one another in our society, you put their names in the paper, you put their picture in the paper, you lock them up, and then that's the end of the story. But the aftermath of that story, you know, to me was really important. So if you read, um, you know, in this book, uh, one of the relatives, I was so fortunate um, that one of the relatives of Mary Turner, her um, great nephew, grand nephew, um, Tyrone Forehand, uh, wrote for this. And he talks about how his family, you know, was impacted by this, that her two children were obviously, you know, lost their mother, lost their father, were raised by relatives under an assumed name, you know, and he, he talks about what happened to families that were involved in this, you know, Hayes Turner's family, you know, all of his siblings were deeply um, traumatized by this. I mean, I think traumatized is even a that's not enough of a word to describe that, what happened. And then, you know, obviously Mary Turner had children and had family. And um, one of the most sort of moving things is when I went to Valdosta to talk about this, you know, women who were related to Hayes and Mary Turner came to the, the talk and I got to hug them. And I thought, you know, it is amazing that I am standing here hugging you. It's amazing that you're here. Um, and it's amazing that you made it you know, wow. through all of this. And, um, you know, people didn't have agency just to pack up and leave, you know, they, and then where would you go? I mean, you're a black person in America, where are you going to go at this point in time? Um, right. So, you know, that was fascinating, but I did want people to think about, you know, this didn't just end with this horrific act. This went on and on. This had implications that lasted for years. And so the men that are mentioned in this as the perpetrators you know, they're all dead, obviously. Um, but they, their families, you know, we're talking maybe three generations. And so it's a real opportunity for people to look back and say, you know, I didn't do this, but my family did this and I benefited from it and it harmed other people, you know, and how did those, how did those relationships still play out? I mean, in Valdosta, when the university took my work and, and, and they said, we're going to put this in the library because it has to be supervised 24 hours a day if we hang it in a gallery where someone isn't there to watch it we guarantee you it's going to be taken down it's going to be vandalized you know mary turner's marker was shot at mm -hmm. several times and i mean this is thick you know this is a historic marker and so these bullets went through the marker several times and then the last time when it finally had to be taken down someone basically took a a, a car or a truck and rammed it until it broke so mm -hmm. this history is still alive and well um, and, you know, I don't want to point a finger. Valdosta is not the only place. I mean, there are other places, as you know, from Probably your every town in the South where this still resonates, you know, where people are still living together. And, you know, I hope they're looking at one another and saying, you know, we don't have to live the way our ancestors lived. You know, how can we 
how can we make amends for this? How can we make reparations? How can we make sure that this never happens again? That you Absolutely. never, you know, people don't live in fear. So this just popped in, into my mind when you said that uh, some of the family of Mary Turner showed up to a talk that you gave. What was, I mean, it seems like it was a positive response, but how, how do you think they felt about you telling her story the way that you did? Well, you know, I was terrified because I thought, you know, what, and, and I think that that's the right, the right frame of mind. You know, I think, um, as historians, um, and I'm not a historian, I like to pretend that I am, but I'm really not. Um, you know, you do have, you do have some sense of obligation to the truth and you do have to think about how is your work impacting people? You know, Mm -hmm. um, of course I was terrified. I thought, Oh my goodness, are they going to be mad at me? Are they going to come up and tell me you have no business doing this? They were so generous. They hugged me. They told me stories. Um, very kind. And of course, um, the Mary Turner project comes out of Valdosta State University. That has been a joint project. Obviously, the Women, Genders, and Sexuality Studies program was part of that. Um, you know, that community has come together around this story. Members of that community um, right. have worked to build an incredible archive of what happened. Like, it was hard to put sources together for various reasons. Um you know, and they've, they've worked together to sort of keep that story alive and to reckon with it. Um, and so, you know, her family had been part of that, clearly, yeah. um, and had been a huge role in resurrecting that story, making sure they people that were involved were memorialized. So, um, you know, I was definitely not the, the first one to the party. And they already had, I guess, some sense of kind of I don't know if ownership is the right word, but 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 they had played a part in in the retelling of the story. I know some of sometimes when when at least when I've studied things that happened in the not so distant past, right in the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, some of the relatives of people uh, who who died or were arrested uh, are still very much alive, and sometimes they don't want the story to be resurrected, um, and and other times they're very appreciative of it. So I was just wondering how how they engaged, but it seems like it was at least nice that they had already been exposed to some of this stuff and played an active role, yeah, in in keeping the story of Mary Turner at the forefront of people's minds. Absolutely, and like I said, you know, again, this is where I have to to give love to librarians, Deborah Davis, who's at Valdosta State University, who's an archivist. Um, and, you know, her colleague, Julie Bolin, who's a friend of mine, who's an artist, you know, did tremendous work um, with those, that family, you know, to say, what, what can we archive? What can we say? What makes you feel safe? Um, you know, it's, it's serious business. We are very big fans of archivists and librarians uh, here on New Books in the American South. Um Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that all the proceeds from this book will go to the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. Uh, Would you just tell us a little bit about that organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope people have gotten a chance to visit that place. You know, I didn't want any money from this, and I thought, you know, what can we do? And their family did not want, because I thought, well, I'll just give all the money to the, you know, people affiliated with their family. They said, we don't want any part of the money at all. And I looked at different churches in the area, and you know, um, really felt like uh, the center in Atlanta was a good place to go because they are keeping a record of what's happened. They are, they are a memorial um, just to say that things can change. You know, people can change, things can change, policies can move. I mean, in my mind, 
as an abolitionist, you have to always engage with the imaginary, you know, what can be. And I think that that museum does a beautiful job of thinking about that um, and getting people to think about why are civil rights important and why do we need to make sure that no one ever forgets how that came about, you know, how those things happened. And how quickly it can be eroded. I think that's one of the really important stories of Jim Crow uh, is that this wasn't just a seamless transition from from slavery to Jim Crow. There was this period of Reconstruction and then after Reconstruction uh, where where the rights of African-Americans were somewhat in flux. You see this expansion of rights during the Reconstruction period, these in, in some cases attempts at biracial coalitions uh, in the South. And then Jim Crow comes and just just really ends all of that and starts to roll those rights back. I think one of the important things about the book you wrote and, and how it engages with this larger idea of we're not necessarily on this linear progressive trajectory uh, and that, that our rights and the rights of others needs to be consistently defended and, and fought for. Otherwise we can see how quickly they can be, be stripped away and how violently they can be stripped away. Well, and I, I mean, I think historians are probably some of the most important figures in, in our culture because, you know, you all keep that light alive. You remind people, don't forget, you know, we didn't just show up here. The other thing that's fascinating about these things, and, you know, I, the more I do research on sort of racial um, violence, is that those cycles are cyclical. You know, they come back around and there's, you know, a, a conglomeration of things happening where this happens over and over. And the narratives are the same, like we continuously fall for the same narratives. Um, and, you know, I think even right now we're in this cycle that we've been here before. And, you know, you want to say you want to shake people by the shoulders and say, if you understood history, you would understand why this is so important, why we can't, you know, go down these paths. Um, so I think history is just one of the most important tools that we have at our disposal. Well, you just won over so many fans, I'm <laughs> sure, um, myself included. Um, well, Professor Rachel Marie Crane Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, again, the book is Elegy for Mary Turner, an illustrated account of a lynching, and it is available now through Verso Books and at numerous online book retailers. Uh, and I will tell you, I'm in Florida where where we are, unfortunately, one of those states where they are probably going to ban everything. Uh, but I will prominently place this book on my bookshelf so every student who comes in will will be forced to reckon with um, what happened to Mary Turner. Uh, and we can make sure that we keep her memory and the memory of, of, of the thousands of other people who were lynched in the Jim Crow period uh, alive. Thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak with you. And thank you so much for reading my book. And um, thank your wife. <laughs> so uh, you have a wonderful day. This has been a real thrill. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it too. And thank you all for listening to New Books in the American South. <laughs>